You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. There's been this, this message in my heart and really the theme of my life of keeping Jesus at the center of everything that we do, everything that we are. He must be preeminent. He must be the center. He must be the reason and the motivation. Otherwise, we'll look to all these other things to motivate us. We'll look to all these other things to define us and to bring us value. You know, I've been walking with the Lord for almost 20 years now, and I've, over the years, and as a child, I've seen many people walk for the Lord faithfully and finish the race well. I've had the honor at times of praying people into glory and, and, and being a part of such a sacred moment. In fact, just recently, uh, uh, a man I, I got to know over the last seven, eight years, by Ed Reed, Zach Sifru's grandfather, uh, went to go be with the Lord. And a man that I look up to so much as a man of faith, uh, wasn't a, a pastor or a preacher, but, but farmed his, his whole life, but loved the Lord and loved his wife and loved his family ferociously passionate about the things of the Lord, keeping the Lord at the center of his life so that when he stood before Jesus and Jesus welcomed him home, he said, well done, well done. Because Jesus remained the center. It wasn't perfect all the time. It didn't mean that it was walking in perfection every single day of his life, but that there was this theme, this overwhelming theme that Jesus, you are the center, you are the reason, you are preeminent in my life. But listen, I've also seen the other side. I've seen people who've walked faithfully with the Lord for a time and then have fallen away. Whether the worries of life overwhelm you, the troubles or difficulties of life overwhelmed them. Whether they fell victim to the ambitions of this life, to success, money. Whatever it is, Somewhere along the line, Jesus left the throne of their heart. And it wasn't his choice. Jesus was removed from the throne of their heart. Jesus was removed from that center point of their life. And oftentimes, you have, maybe you've felt this way. I know I have. And you think, how did I get here? What happened? Somewhere along the line, we said, Jesus, I want this more than I want you. I want to pursue this thing more than I want to pursue you. Jesus needs to be the center. This is your call. You want to know the will of God for your life? This is the question I get asked all the time. I want to know God's will. Keep Jesus at the center. Learn to love him. Learn to love him. Put him to the highest place in your life and in your heart and in your mind and everything that you do. Put him at the center. May he be the light and life of your life. Some have told me throughout the years, you guys are a little too radical about this Jesus thing, about religion, right? It's fine to just go to church and, and hear a little message and then go on our way, maybe have Bible verses up on our mirror or uh, on, painted on the walls of our houses, but let's not get too wild. Let's not get too radical about Jesus. Unfortunately, there's no scripture to support that type of mindset. Nowhere in scripture does Jesus say, you know what, just incorporate, just add me into your life. Just add me to it. 
Just sprinkle me in a little bit here, a little bit there, wherever. I'll just be in the, I'll hang out in the corner here. You won't even know I'm here. Just add me to your phone like an app. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. In fact, it's the opposite. In this life, we are measured not by what we accumulate or what we can bring to the table like all the other religions of the world or the world judges by what you can give, what you can do, what you can accumulate, how good you can really be on your own. No, the kingdom is measured by surrender. Doesn't love begin in surrender? Doesn't obedience begin in surrender? Doesn't faithfulness begin and surrender? It all starts with this place of submission to the king. I was reading in, in, in Daniel, I was reading the, the book of Daniel this last spring and I was reading in Daniel 9 and this is when, when the people of God are in exile in Babylon and it's the last king of Babylon, uh, Belshazzar. And he's having this big party and the Syrians are at their, at their doorstep ready to take over. And they're having this big dinner party and they're actually using like uh, 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 cups and dishes and ornaments from the temple to have their party. And all of a sudden they're having this party and they see this hand appear, which would be freaky. They see this hand appear and starts writing on the wall. And they don't know what, 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 what the writing is. So they call Daniel, the prophet, to come. And it's three phrases. One is you're about to lose the kingdom. The second is you have been weighed on the scales and you're found, you have been found lacking. And the third is everything that you have is going to be divided among the Persians and the Syrians. I read this spring, I read, I read that, that second. You've been weighed on the scales and you've been found lacking. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. We like to measure ourselves by what we can do and what we can bring to the table, don't we? I am worth it, God. I am worth your love. I can do this on my own. Let me show you. When we're weighed on the scales, we'll be measured by our surrender, by what we've emptied ourselves of. This is, we see this story in the, in the Gospel of Luke in the rich young ruler. This young man, he's not even given a name in scripture, the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes on about the commandments. He says, Lord, I've done all these things since I was a young boy. I've kept every command and Jesus says, this one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And said the young man turned sad and, and, and walked away and that was the last we ever heard of him. It's surrender. Here's a man doing all the things, checking all the boxes, accumulating all the things there are to accumulate and yet Jesus says, you haven't surrendered to me. You haven't submitted yourself to me, follow me. In Luke 9, there's a story of three different people who come to Jesus the first man says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. We know that this man is a scribe. He's a man of affluence, of power and prestige in Jewish culture. He says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you're thinking, what does that mean? 
He's essentially saying what he says to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. He says, you think you're rich and in need of nothing, but you do not know that you are poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me fire refined in the fire. Solve for your eyes so that you might see. He says, if you want to follow me, it's going to take complete surrender. I don't even know where I'm sleeping tonight. The next man said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, but you follow me. There's no people pleasing in the kingdom. If you want to care for your family rightly, put Jesus at the middle. If you want to love your family better than you're able to love Jesus the most. Another man comes again, he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me first, let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. He looks a singular eye on Jesus. You are my focus. You are my, you are the one I give all of my attention to. And outflows from that is everything else in our lives. Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center. That's why it's this upside down kingdom. Jesus says, if you desire to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So deny yourself. This is in all the gospels. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. Take up your cross. Do not circumvent the cross in your life. Take up the cross. Die to yourself so that he might live in you. That he might be the center of your being in everything that you do. I could go on and on and on, but I made my point. Look, turn me to Revelation chapter 7 with me. I want to show you, this, set the scene. I have a lot of scripture today. I just have a lot on my heart. As you can tell, I'm going to try to communicate it clearly as I can. And we'll see how at the end, how we did. Revelation 7 sets this scene for us that's like a, the crescendo of what it is to follow Jesus. And this is, a, he's prophesying about a day to come. But in this scripture, it shows us about the character of the Lord, the nature of him, and our, our role in this kingdom, who we are and what, what, what we are to do. In verse nine it says, after this I, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and, and language, standing before the throne, before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of, the, come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made their white, their, them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will, will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Amen. This is not a reality that any one of us is going to know right now, but it does speak to a day to come when we'll stand before the Lord and Jesus will be at the center and we will worship him day and night. We will love on him. We will pour it all out before him day and night. All, that's, that's what we will do. We will love. And so then the natural byproduct will be all of these other things. We will not hunger. We will never thirst. The sun won't be down on us. We will have a shepherd who will lead us. We will lead them to springs of living, who will lead us to springs of living water and wipe away every single tear. This is the natural consequence of being in the presence of the king. And so while we cannot experience that to the fullest right now in this life, there's still a foretaste that we can experience in this life when we see Jesus at the center. This speaks to the nature of God, of his ability to, to, to provide for you, to be all sufficient for you, to protect you. And now while none of us are exempt from tragedy and difficulty in this life, we serve a king who loves us more than we could ever know. Who's seen you at your worst and is the one who loves you the most. And in that place, the natural overflow, the natural byproduct of being with him is experiencing these blessings of, of, of kingdom provision and protection, love and fulfillment and satisfaction of the heart. Rich and deep and meaningful relationships with other people. If Jesus is at the center, he must be at the center. All that we do. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus is not at the center, what is? If Jesus is not at the center, who is? In your life, think about it. If Jesus is not at the center, what is at the center of my life? What is the core of who I am? When I look back at my life one day, we'll say, this is what so-and-so was all about. What's at the core of who you are? What defines you and brings value and worth and motivates you? If Jesus is not at the center, what is? So I'm going to look at three things this morning. We're going to kind of start out broad and come in close. Jesus would love to be at the center of the heart of our world, wouldn't he? Like the entire world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But humanity gets to choose. And he came to bring light, because he is light. He came to bring light into this world, to show a world they've been living in darkness. We used to, when we lived in Iowa City, my daughter, Evie, was young in our house. 
we didn't realize it until we moved in, didn't have very many windows. <laughs> so it was like dark and my Evie would go outside and, in the sun and she'd be like, what is that thing in the sky? <laughs> and we're like, that's called the sun. She wasn't accustomed to it. It was always like this big deal, the sun in her eyes, to make sure the sunglasses were there, you know. Those who are, not, who are accustomed to the darkness, the light will be offensive. But Jesus is the light of the world. And in this world, you'll see, if Jesus is not the center, what is at the center? Selfish ambition, selfish desire, self-satisfaction will be at the center. When it's easy to find, it's easy to look around the world and see that's what drives most of what happens in this world, isn't it? So when Jesus is not the center, that's the natural overflow. That's what makes sense. In John 3, Jesus says, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, he says, I am the light of the world, but men choose darkness. In fact, they love darkness. And it, it's, it's, it's like grieving to my heart. It must be more, so much more grieving to the Lord to like settle for such a lesser love in our lives. Like the type of love, the fickle love that, the world, that you experience from the world. That's judged so much by what we're able to, like I said before, bring to the table, what you're able to do. It's so conditional. Not understanding that there is an unconditional love that you and I can experience from a, a, the creator of the universe that we are actually designed to experience and live and walk in every single day. But many are offended by this love. In fact, Isaiah 30 speaks of these people. He says, for these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things and prophesy illusions. Leave this way and get off the path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. When you're accustomed to the darkness, the light will be offensive to you. But it's interesting to think about light and dark, isn't it? Drew's, Pastor Drew's been talking about this the last couple weeks. Light is the presence of something, isn't it? It's the presence of light particles. Darkness is the absence of, of it, isn't it? So if you're in bed at night and you're getting ready to go to bed, you don't say to your, to your wife, you don't turn around and say, honey, would you... Uh, Make it, uh, would you turn the darkness on? Right? No, we don't say that, that's silly. Say, would you turn the light off? Because when there is no light, what happens? It is dark. And this explains so much of how the world is, the, the, the problem of evil and all these different things. It's the absence of the Lord. It's the absence of the essence of goodness. The absence of light makes dark, but as soon as the light comes in, what happens? It doesn't matter how dark it is. It becomes light. It could be the darkest dark darkness in the entire world, but as soon as you have a flashlight, it becomes light, doesn't it? You cannot take out the darkness or the light when, when, uh, when it appears. And this is our Jesus. Us living, groping around in the dark. And here our Savior appears as great light, driving away the darkness so that we might see him. John 1 says that he is the light of life. 
What happens when you're cut off from life? It's death, isn't it? God's desire and his plan for the world was not sin and death, disease. That wasn't his plan. But if you cut yourself off from the source of life, that is what you're left with. And what does sin do? This is, this is Sunday School 101, right? What does sin do? It separates us from God. So in the garden, sin enters the world. We're cut off from life. And so the natural consequence of being cut off from life is death. And I don't just mean like a death, like a physical death, but the, the death in the spiritual sense of being eternally cut off from God. And so then this is the gospel, isn't it? Jesus, an Israelite, born of a virgin, miraculously, living a perfect life, perfect in every way, dying a sinner's death, a criminal's death, taking the penalty and defilement that sin brings and taking it upon himself on a cross. But then on that third day, being raised from the dead. And that's why every time we sing about the resurrection of Christ, something excites us. Because the only over, way to overcome death is to defeat it. And this is what Jesus did. He conquered death on that third day. He overcame death. And now de death is not the, the master. Jesus is the master. That's why Colossians 2 says that he is the firstborn of the dead. He goes before us in all things. So he must be the center. We can't cut the light out of our life. We can't cut the life out of our life and expect things to go well for us. Jesus must be preeminent. He must be the center. And this is our role in this world as well, to bring the light to people. You are the light of the world, he says now. Why? Because the spirit of God is living in you. So everywhere you walk, everywhere, every, every place that you, you place your feet, now the spirit of God is in you. you are, the light of God is in you. I had this vision years ago of, of, of me walking around in the darkness and I, and I had this huge like floodlight. 10,000 lumens, floodlight just shining it all over. And I came up to this door and I opened the door and I shined it in it. And inside this room were all these people and there were those who, who, who saw this light and were, like I said before, accustomed to the darkness and shielded their eyes from it, turned away offended by the light, but then there were those who were groping for a way out. <laughs> that when they saw the light, they ran towards it. <laughs> Listen, you and I, it's, it's that same way. We have the light of the Lord in us everywhere that we go. And there might be some that are offended by that light, but then there are those who are desperate. They've been searching for the light and they'll come running towards it. Many of us in this room have experienced that. When the light of God appeared to us, it was what our hearts had been longing for. We ran towards it. Shortly after that, I was sitting in a, in a, in a I don't know why I can't think of the word, a, a haircutting establishment. Uh, <laughs> getting my haircut. And uh, <laughs> the haircutting person. Uh, <laughs> 
the hairstylist, was sitting there, we were just talking, you know, and she asked me this question about my life, that in, in my situation, oftentimes I have this moment where people ask me about my life where I can think, where I say, okay, I can give them like the cliche version or I can give them, maybe answer the question they're not asking and go, and go there. <laughs> and for whatever reason that day, the Lord reminded me of that, that vision that he gave me. And I began to tell her about my life. How we grew up in a broken home, broken family. My mother took her life when I was a young man and I was angry, I hated the Lord. And when I was 20 years old, addicted to drugs, I gave my life to Jesus and he changed my life. Fill me with the spirit. She starts crying and she begins telling me about her life, that she had lost her dad recently and it was under the kind of mysterious circumstances and she had lots of questions she didn't know. She goes, what do you think about psychics? She goes, I, I, me and my, my boyfriend are gonna go to the psychic because we're just desperate to know the answer of why my, my dad passed away. She's crying hard by this point. She's got scissors in her hands and I'm kind of just like, let's just take it, we'll take a little break. Let's just take a little break here. And I begin to be able to minister her right there. A room full of people. Begin to tell her, you don't want anything to do, you don't want anything to do with psychics. The Lord knows you, he loves you. He can give you the answers that you're searching for or give you the peace in not knowing. Either way, he is the answer. I got to sit there and pray with her. Listen, the light is in you. The light is in you. And the darkness cannot overcome it, John 1 says. It can't even understand it, it makes no sense. Jesus must be the center of the world. Number two, Jesus at the center of his church. If Jesus isn't the center of the church, then what is? The focus will be on the giftings of people, propping up people, idolizing people. It will be on programs. It will be on position, your position, your role. It will be on giftings. It'll be on the, the desire to be properly entertained. It will shy away from a cross-centered gospel and a call from Jesus for each one of us to die. If Jesus is not the center, we're irrelevant to the world. Unfortunately, this is common in our day and age. You have no idea how many times we hear it, people that come to our church, and it's just so refreshing to sing about Jesus. Like what else, are we, what else is there to sing about? What else are we doing here? It's so nice to hear a message about Jesus. Jesus needs to be the center of his church. Imagine this, imagine you have a house. And now I'm not equating the church to a building. When I talk about his house, what I'm referring to is any, any sort of context in which his people gather together. But imagine you have a house, you built a, this house or you bought a house and you're so excited about it and you invite a bunch of people over there. And when you show up, 
Everybody's there already, and the party's already going on. And you go up to the door of your house, and you turn the doorknob, and it's locked. You say, well, that's funny, this is my house. And they change the locks on me. So you knock on the door, they open the door, and they say, hey, so glad you're here. Like, yeah, this is my house. (laughs) They invite you into your house, right? They say, oh, we're so glad you're here. Please, mind yourself. Don't create any disturbances. Don't do anything that's gonna make anyone feel weird. Don't disrupt the program that we've got prescribed. Please don't speak to us anything that's too close to the heart. You say, this is my house. You're a guest in my house. This was my idea. So it is in his kingdom, isn't it? In his house, his church. It's his idea, it's his thing. It's not my thing, it's not Pastor Drew's thing, it's not any of our thing, this is his thing. We've been invited to his table. We've been invited to sit with him. We were out on our own. We were blind, unable to save ourselves, and he invited us in. Who am I to dictate the terms to him? But instead we say, Jesus, this is your church. Big C and little C, this is your church. Come do what you wanna do. You are the honored guest. All the effort that we have spent over the years rolling out the red carpet for, for, for guests and new people. Jesus, we wanna roll out the red carpet for you because if you come, you will change people. If your presence comes, Lord, you will heal people and they will experience you. You have to come, Jesus. If he's not the center, we'll lose sight of what he is like, what he sounds like, what his voice sounds like, what he, his character. We get confused. We start to accept ideologies of the world or a shallow, powerless gospel. It's a form of godliness, but lacks the power. Jesus is not the center of the church. It is not a church, it is a headless church. It is a dead body. And I'm thankful for every gospel-believing church in our city, and we pray for them. Pray that the Lord would show up, the Holy Spirit would encounter those people in miraculous ways. And like I've said before, we don't get to make decisions for other bodies, and I believe in the autonomy of of churches, and I think it's a good thing. But we get to make decisions for this family. And we will say, as for this house, as for us, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will make Jesus the center. He will be the honored guest. And yes, we want every visitor to feel welcomed here. Hospitality is a big deal. It is the heart of the Lord. But it doesn't go before him. Jesus is the highest place. What? He said this. If I be lifted up, what? I'll draw all men unto myself. He's speaking of the cross. But if we lift him up corporately, I hear that again, time and time again, like I said before. People come into this place. I don't hear people sing this loud and worship in Jesus. Get this excited about the Lord. Jesus, come be the center of this church. 
be the center of our life. And the last thing is, Jesus, be the center of my life. I told you it was simple. If Jesus is the center of all of your relationships, how would your relationships change? If Jesus is not the center of your relationship, what is? Is security? Is harmony and peace? The desire for love or respect? What is the center of your relationships? What's the center of your family? Fathers, you will not be able to lead your family the way that God wants you to lead them if he is not the center. Scott, would you come? I've been so impressed. Um, over the last six to nine months, God's really been doing something in the men in our church. There's this burden on our hearts to start to begin to pray for the men of our church. And I can't tell you the amount of men that I've had come to me that said, over the last nine months, that says, I feel like God is crushing me. I feel like I'm coming to the end of myself. I say, well, you should thank him for that. But in those situations, there's one of two things that can happen. You can lean into Jesus. Or you can run away. And I've been so proud of the men. I've just been seeing so many men in our church come to this point, this turning point, and say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, receive gladly the mantle of leadership that's been placed on my life from the Lord and then stepping up and leading it's not about spiritual competency having all the answers it's about being first in the place of prayer it's being first in the place of worship of leading your family spiritually saying we're going to go after the Lord follow me Jesus is at the center of your marriage. You're on sinking sand. You're on sinking sand, I'm telling you. The feelings won't, won't sustain you. The tips and tricks of marriage, which I, I think are great, aren't going to sustain you. Jesus has to be the center. He has to be the bedrock, the foundation. You cannot love your spouse the way that you need to love your spouse without him. It's a sacrificial love of preferring the other above yourself. God places in your life is Jesus the center of that relationship this has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week for more resources visit us at lifepoint.cc